So based on what I interpreted as a popular demand at the end of the session two weeks ago, <laughs> I'm going to continue uh, with the theme of meditation or mindfulness in the midst of our activities, in the midst of daily life, in the midst of whatever we're doing. And what I'd like to do is to give a kind of, a, of um, an overview of some of the places that um, we've explored in the, in the uh, two sessions. For the people who were here, uh, who weren't here at the other ones, this is the third of three sessions on mindfulness in daily life. And so I want to um, give a kind of overview of some of the territory we've covered and bring in um, some new material. And uh, my intention is to finish with plenty of time so we can talk about what's worked for you and what kind of questions you've had. And how many people have continued to give some uh, energy that's a little more than usual to daily life practice in the last two weeks? Which That's great. So we can really um, <laughs> compare some notes and uh, ask some questions of each other, of the group, and, and see where we've been. One thing I want to do, um, just at, even at the beginning of the talk, is to invite you to keep some internal awareness as you listen to the talk. This is actually, in my experience, one of the secrets of daily life practice is to develop the ability to have some inner attention at the same time that we are giving outer attention. And not so much inner attention that you don't listen to the talk. <laughs> But can you, can you have 20, 30, 40, 50% of your attention being inward? And it might be simply to be attentive to your body as you listen. It might be to watch your mind, to notice your comments, to notice when you're distracted, to notice when some subject um, makes you think about lunch and you go off to lunch <laughs> and come back without bringing us any. <laughs> or, you, or, you, um, or you have some commentary, you have some thoughts, oh, that's a really great thought, or you know, everyone knows that. Why does he have to say that over and over? Or something like that. So you can just um, notice what's going on, or you might want to stay with your heart and feel the, the heart energy. So I invite you to experiment, because I think this is something that uh, for me is really a key to uh, daily life. And I'll, I'll I'll talk more about that in a while. And my intention, sitting up here, is to stay in touch with my body and my heart as I talk. And, I, and I've, I've talked about how um, John Travis, uh, one of my mentors, gave me this challenge to give talks and mostly focused on my body and my heart. And after proper planning and preparation, let my thoughts self-organize and not really, in other words, to avoid being overly mental in a, in a talk. So that's, that's um, one of my practices. So if you keep your side, I'll keep my side. So, so we, have this, um, we have this wonderful challenge, which I think is really a challenge of our, of our community of our almost a larger cultural challenge to bring 
mindfulness into the daily lives, our daily lives, of busy, speedy, future planning America. And to do that with grace, determination, and endless energy. <laughs> uh, I think it, it's really, um, I think this is a challenge that you may not have known that you've been given, but maybe after today you'll know more clearly. We've all been given this uh, challenge to make, to have our daily lives be places of practice in a culture which maybe supports it in some ways and that some of us have some free time. I saw a few eyebrows get raised when I, when I said that. <laughs> but at least, you know, you're, most of America is what? They're doing what? They're working now or at school or something. So even to be here is, is in a way, either it's a luxury or it's ability to control your schedules. So, uh, but we have, the, we have this challenge. You know, I, I remember reading um, a wonderful work that influenced me a lot by Gary Snyder, who's one of my personal heroes, who lives out in the Sierra uh, foothills and has been a wonderful example of bringing mindfulness into daily life. And he wrote a book with actually a collection of essays, I think it was mostly interviews, called The Real Work. And he, he saw the real work as something like, like this, to bring mindfulness into daily life. And he, he said something that was really striking for me. He said, he had had the experience of uh, being in the 1950s in uh, Japanese Zen monasteries. And he said something like he thought that for America, there really wasn't a huge role for a monk or a nun, that somehow our task was to make this real in living kind of ordinary lives, living lives in the world. And it wasn't to disparage the choice to be a monk or a nun, but he didn't, he didn't think that it would have the cultural role that it has in Asia, for example. He thought that it would be supportive and important, but that, and I think it's, it's very evidenced by, you know, uh, most of uh, the, the spirit rock teachers, for example, are, you know, we have, I think, one monk among the spirit rock teachers. And there's some sense that people with uh, deep spiritual aspiration have chosen for whatever reason to lead lives with jobs and family and um, sometimes political involvement and creative involvement and so forth to lead these ordinary lives. So it's this incredible challenge. And we, we don't know exactly how to do that. Um, the Buddha gave some very general instructions. He says, here's how to develop mindfulness in daily life. He said, this is from the Satipatthana Sutta, the, the the, the core text on the development of mindfulness, the, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. He said, a practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending one's limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing robes and carrying the outer robe and bowl of a, of a monk or nun, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. The instructions end there. We, we could say, well, why don't you continue and say, a practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when listening to one's spouse complain. <laughs> or a practitioner is one 
who acts in full awareness at a difficult work meeting. A practitioner is one who acts in full awareness um, listening to the Republican National Convention. <laughs> That's where body awareness is very, very important. <laughs> you know, or a practitioner is one who acts in full awareness looking at a large pile of children's clothes that need to be washed. Right? That's sort of, and unfortunately, those instructions are not in the suttas. And so we have to really find ways to do this. We have to do this in a culture which is uh, speedy and fast, which is future-oriented. There's a wonderful line that comes from um, uh, the poet Yeats, who says that much of our lives are spent preparing for something that never occurs. It's that way that what we get on this kind of treadmill where we're always looking to the future, where we what um, we work hard in high school so we can get into the best college, so we can get the best job, so we can make enough money to what maybe maybe support a family, help support a family, so we can raise our children so they can go to high school, <laughs> so they can go to college in order to get a good job. And the only certainty is that it all ends with death. And I'm, you know, so it's, and I'm exaggerating some, but there's a sense that it's not hard to see that um, many of us, our lives are very much out of the present. And there's a culture which really supports that. You know, we want to, you know, when do we really live? Maybe retirement? But often by then we've forgotten what we really wanted to do. You know, I saw this when I was in um, teaching in a university. And there were all these young teachers who said, I can't really, I can't really write about what I'm really interested in because there's a tenure system. And what I'm really interested in wouldn't be approved of. So I have to write what the authorities think is important. And they do this for years, and they get tenure, and they've forgotten what they're really interested in. You know? And I think it's like Joseph Campbell said, you know, we're very good sometimes at climbing up the ladder, but we sometimes realize, hopefully sooner rather than later, that the ladder is, is on the wrong wall. <laughs> And so this is, this is the challenge of being in this culture. And so what, you know, what supports mindfulness in the midst of all this activity? I think in, in the long run, I think we want to together create a different kind of culture. And I'm going to end with some thoughts about that. But, but in the meantime, as we have subcultures that give more, more support, what do, what's really important to to help us with uh, the daily life practice. And I want to really talk about um, two, kinds of, um, two kinds of supports. One or more the inner supports, and one or more the outer supports. And maybe I'll start with the, um, with the outer supports. Because um, there, really, there really are a lot of 
things we can do, and we've, we've talked about a lot of these, and I just want to review them. Partly I was, I was inspired, because I think I told you two weeks ago, I, I think I identified that I'm trying to finish a book by Labor Day, as some of you know, on the connection between inner work and social change. And I I'm, I'm, was working on a chapter called Mindfulness in Action. <laughs> and part of the chapter was I have, I have a list of uh, what I call 50 ways of supporting mindfulness in action. I think I told you about that. Actually, at the moment, I only have 45. <laughs> so hopefully some of you will help me out. <laughs> but I wanted just to read some of these, because just to read some of what I've come up with, and some of it's from, with friends, because this can maybe um, inspire us. Because it's really, I think we have to be, this, do this incredibly creative work of finding these ways to support our daily life practice. So I'll just, I won't, won't read all 45, but I'll read, I'll read some of these just to give a flavor. Some of them are obvious and some of them are less obvious. But these are things that we can sort of do externally. Some of them we do by ourselves. Some of them we do with others. And I think both are important because I think this challenge of being mindful in daily life, we really have to see it as something um, where the sangha is involved, something communal, something collective. To think that I, by myself, have to entirely do everything myself and be totally mindful all the time in the face of a difficult culture and a busy life and so forth. I think, I think that's, I think for most of us, it's too hard. I think we really have to see this as something where we support each other. So here are first some individual supports and then some uh, more uh, communal supports. Maintain a daily mindfulness practice, practicing even for a short time on days when things are very busy. Number one, take short breaks for five or ten minute mindfulness practice during the day, uh, perhaps with someone else. If you've been sitting for a while, take a short walk, practicing walking meditation. Sometimes just take even shorter breaks of one minute or two minutes. Sit five or ten minutes before meals, perhaps with someone else. Or sit, you know, take a minute to begin a meal. Many of you, I'm sure, do, do a lot of these things. Have a period of quiet mindfulness just before eating, perhaps with a reflection. Take a short mindfulness walk after a meal in silence, perhaps with someone else. I do that every lunch when I can. Every lunch I just go for a 10-minute walk in mindfulness, and it, it just kind of brings me back to myself some, somewhat. Periodically eat a meal in silence, alone or with others. Be mindful just before going to sleep, and if possible, upon waking. For a particular week, set the intention to be mindful during one of the regular repetitive activities that you do. Brushing your teeth, showering, taking... I have, right, it should be taking a bath. I have taking a path. <laughs> Washing the dishes, gardening, shopping, being at the computer, and so on. So it's to really give uh, energy to bringing awareness to these repetitive activities. Have, your, have a place in your home that's dedicated to mindfulness and go there often. It might be a room or a corner of a room. It might be outside. Something that really is connected with mindfulness in your, in your understanding. Find a place or places in the non-human world where you go regularly and which seem to facilitate your mindfulness. It might be a particular place in the forest or fields or mountains by a lake or river or ocean. How many people have something like that? It's wonderful. I, I know I have a place near, in Berkeley near Tilden Park, a redwood grove. I just go there and it just... When I go there, the redwood trees say hi, and we 
gossip a little bit, and then uh, and then the mindfulness just comes more easily. You know, some of, I think we all know this. Once a week, devote a Sabbath day to mindfulness and to what nourishes your deeper intentions. Do this by yourself or with one or more others, such as family members, friends, or community members. If a whole day is too much, devote a half a day or three or four hours of a morning or afternoon. The key is to do it regularly, every week if possible. And I'll go, go on. Wear jewelry like a bracelet or a mala or a string around your wrist, reminding you to be mindful. During the day, create small bodily movements, like moving your fingers as a way to come back to mindfulness. Just be there at the desk and go, just move your fingers around. You know? This one uh, Thai teacher, I think I told this story once, that uh, he learned about mindfulness late in life. He was a farmer. He was on a tractor. And he just really got into feeling with his hands the touch of the tractor. He did this for months with great dedication, and then later stopped being a farmer. When driving, sometimes just be mindful or practice metta rather than listen to the radio. Be aware of your body, your heart, or your mind. When at a red light, practice mindfulness rather than continually urging the light to change. <laughs> there, you could say a lot about driving, right? <laughs> When driving, drive a little more slowly, relax, and be mindful. And I think somewhere I had, when going somewhere, plan ahead so you can relax and leave a little more time. When walking somewhere, devote your time to walking meditation. Let go of whatever you are going to think about. And then I'll do some of the more uh, group ones. Work with a mindfulness mentor or teacher, checking in regularly from once a week to once a month. Really have someone that you can check in with, or it could be a could be a peer. At retreats, particularly focused on the ordinary informal activities like eating, working, brushing one's teeth, taking a shower, and so on. Um, develop group intentions to be mindful and ways to support the, these intentions. Email reminders, telephone calls. Um, um, some of the groups I work with in Berkeley that just meet at my house, we have gotten the habit now of um, Having, we meet every two weeks, and after one week, someone sends an email to everyone reminding them, because we usually have some sort of take-home practice reminding people what to do. So it's like a reason for yet another um, email. Um, let your group take on a project in the world to be carried out with mindfulness. Find a mindfulness buddy, perhaps from your group, and talk to the buddy periodically. You know, from every day to every week or two, encouraging each other. Make a vow expressing the intention to be mindful, uh, using your own words with either a friend or a group or by yourself, and renew your vow periodically. So I did this once uh, with a close friend. We made, I made a vow that I will, um, I made a vow with every action I was part of to be uh, both present and kind. And there was something about doing with another person which had incredible power. You know, like the vow really stayed with me. You know, so I think we're getting, getting, getting hints, and a lot of you probably do these, of just the, the, the vast array of supports that we can find, a lot of which could really help by other people. But it's really, a matter of, it's really a matter of having it be a priority to be mindful. 
But that, that I want to switch now to sort of to more the inner dimensions of the practice. And it's really, I wanted to talk about uh, intention a little bit further, about effort, and about this, this quality I talked about last time, about uh, cultivating the threads of mindfulness in body, heart, or mind. And, and then, I'll then I'll end with a sense of the sort of, uh, um, sort of a larger collective vision so this, this quality of intention is really important. I think we need somehow to tap this energy that really wants to be mindful, it's to really find that which in, our, in ourselves, which really wants to be present, which really is interested. And, and it comes from ourselves, not because someone said be mindful and not because you think you should, but something very genuine in oneself that wants to be present. It may be because we know that if I'm not present, I'm going to suffer more. It may be because being present, I connect with life and with beauty. And it's just something that's very awesome about that. It may be because being present, I'm really, I can serve others best. If I'm not present, I don't do so well. And there's something about being really strongly in touch with intention, which is at the heart of this daily life practice. It's, I like to think about our practice as mindfulness plus intention. And that's all our practice is. We try to be as mindful as we can in the present moment and then have an intention. An intention, as you know, the Buddha said, is the same as action, it's, 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 which is the word for karma. That, that intention sets in motion action. And so we could think of the entirety of our practice is simply mindfulness in the moment. And on the basis of our mindfulness, having as wise and compassionate an intention as we can, moment after moment. That's all we do. And so intention is incredibly important. That's why the Buddha said it was the, um, the key to karma. And so having that intention to be aware and having that get stronger and stronger is a key part of our practice. I know I've been, one of the things which touches me really, really deeply is seeing how people can have the intention to be aware or to be kind or be loving, even when they've had a lot of um, difficult things in life. You know, I, was, I was talking with a friend uh, a little while ago, and she was um, now, she's in middle age, and she had had a very, very difficult childhood, very traumatic childhood, and she, was, and she has these tremendous gifts, incredibly uh, bright, very verbal, and so forth. And she was talking about how, in some ways, she felt a lot of grief because she could see how her childhood had made it difficult if with, with a more, she thought, with a, a less traumatic childhood, she might be a famous writer or a, you know, a, a professor and so forth. And yet she still, she's been really working on her uh, the childhood material for a long time, and I think she's really coming, coming through the other end. But what really inspired me was that she said, you know, it would be possible just to give up. It would be possible just to say, my life has been too hard. I'm going to, you know, it's too late or something, or it's been too hard. And, and what she said was really, no, I have, there's a strong intention in, in me to really keep going to really to um, work through this. And I feel that intention really strongly. And, I, and she keeps on bringing it to the fore, even though she gets lost sometimes. You know, we all get lost sometimes. But there's that intention, 
which as we strengthen it can really take one through the, those difficult moments. It's in, and that intention is in a way a kind of protector. You know, the Dalai Lama was asked once, what do you do about all the people calling you a counter-revolutionary, a scoundrel, a wolf in sheep's clothing, you know, all these negative things. And, and he, his answer was, I take refuge in my sincere intention. My, my sincere intention protects me from what other people say. And he also later said it protects me from fear, that I, that I take a kind of refuge. And, that, and strengthening that intention and having the intention be stronger and stronger is really crucial for daily life. It's just to keep on making the intention, even though we've uh, maybe missed things. You know, you know, just keep coming back. Even though we weren't so aware the last moment, now we keep coming back. It's a little bit like there's a, there's a cartoon from um, Life in Hell. Everyone know Life in Hell? Matt Groening, I guess the same person who created The Simpsons, right? And it, it, it shows, I don't know, who's the character with the rabbit ears? Anyone know the character's name? Huh? Spinky. Okay. This, this shows the power of continued intention. The, there are nine, nine little blocks. The first one says, starting right now, I will commit to my deepest truth. Starting right now, I will remain conscious and mindful. Starting right now, I will stay with myself through all my feelings of pain and suffering. Starting right now, I will live my life with an open, trusting heart. Starting right now, I will forgive my, everyone, including myself. Starting right now, I will embrace the unknown with wonder and awe. Starting right now, I will honor myself with unflinching honesty. Then the eighth little block says, morning coffee breaks over. <laughs> the ninth block says, starting at lunch, I will surrender myself to the love of the cosmos. <laughs> so I think we get, have that sense that yeah, intentions are something just to keep coming back to. Keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. And they're crucial to this practice. It's just finding, and a lot of what all those 50 ways to support mindfulness, a lot of about those are just reminding us to be, reminding us of our intentions over and over again. Because it, it doesn't bear repeating, or it does bear repeating, that the hardest thing about mindfulness in daily life is not mindfulness itself, but it's remembering the intention to be mindful. And then actually being mindful. Because that's really what that's really what we need to do, and it takes it really takes a tremendous effort. You know, it takes an effort to sort of mobilize ourselves. It's really about being in touch with this energy, which really wants to be aware, which really wants to know, which really wants to open up to the presence of life. You know, um, which really and and again, you can think of mindfulness using the word mindfulness, you can also thinking about being present to life. Um, as part of my book, I'm doing interviews, and I had the pleasure yesterday of spending four or five hours with Joanna Macy. And I taped, we taped a lot of it, and it was just wonderful. And she, she, her, her basis for being mindful is that she loves life. She talks like that, and that's her language. She, she, I don't know if she uses the word mindful, but I think if, if she just says, I want to be present to life. And it just came through so powerfully. 
in the um, interview and conversation. And that's, so I think we have to find what language really resonates for us, really what taps into our effort, what really calls for us to be, to be present, to be mindful. And then there are the, something that I mentioned two weeks ago, I think that we have to find these ways of knowing with what part of our experience we really want to um, ground ourselves in our mindfulness. I talked about how it's really crucial to find a kind of thread of awareness in our experience. And I talked about finding that in the, the body, in the heart, or in the, in, in the mindfulness of the mind. That there's a way that we have to know where we're most able to ground ourselves. Because I think mindfulness in the midst of activity really go, works well when we start to have this energy of mindfulness just be there more and more without even trying so hard. And that takes some practice, but that after a while, that's why I think, uh, for example, to develop body awareness. For many, for me, that's really like my own thread. And just saying it, I kind of come back to my, mo- my body as I'm talking. It's, it's a really, for many of us, that thread of awareness of one's body is the crucial thread that helps there be mindfulness in daily life. Because, so I think it's really something to, um, for many of us to emphasize, to cultivate in retreats, in practice, and, and really try, um, try to bring that mindfulness to our bodies in meetings, in just being around the house. Just keep coming back to your body. You know? and, and there are all these techniques that can help that. Just, just stop in the middle of activities and just feel your body. Because I think that somehow we have to have that balance of a certain amount of inner attention going on even as we're outwardly focused. It's a shift in the culture. The culture is really external. I think a culture of mindfulness would teach us from a young age how to be aware internally at the same time as we're aware externally. You know? To know how the world's meeting us. Because what happens if we don't do that? We tend to be reactive. Things just knock us around. If we don't know our inner experience when some words come at us, how are we going to stay centered or mindful? So there's a way that we have to know what's happening internally. And the body is one of, I think, the three core threads that can help us do that, to really let us, because if we're aware of our bodies and we're in a conversation, there's a part of us which isn't totally wrapped up in in the words. That can give us a hope of being mindful. Someone says something nasty, and instead of being right reactive, we can feel our bodies and say, I didn't like that. That hurt some. Or that's, you know, I can feel my body getting clenching or whatever. And that kind of mindfulness is totally crucial for letting us then have the intention to actually respond with some awareness and compassion rather than just be an automatic pilot. So I think that finding a way to have some of that internal attention as much as possible during the day, and to train for that, we have to, it does take some training to develop uh, that inner awareness in the midst of activity. It also demands uh, that we really want to do it. So to to train to have more body awareness, to be with the breath, to find ways of doing it during the day. It's first meditating, I just, I didn't have a car and I loved that I could walk around town and just use all the time for walking meditation. 
didn't have to think about what was you know, going to happen next or what was on my mind. And it was, it was really, I loved it because I was hungry for finding time for meditation. And so there's the same way that we can have that thread of the heart, that for some of us, we may lead with our bodies in mindfulness. For some of us, we may lead with our heart, that we find that it really is meaningful for me to say, I want to approach my activities coming out of my heart. And it might be to physically be aware of the sensations at the, at the chest and, to, and remind ourselves to be with that in our interactions with people or in our work. You know, what would it be like to have that awareness of our hearts in our work with others? You know, as a way of being mindful. You know, and what helps us to do that more? What helps us to train? You know, and we, again, we can be inspired. I, I talked. I remember talking about uh, Gandhi, who had the the prayer, the the prayer of saying the word for God, Ram, that he said continually, and that was on his lips when he was shot. And amazing to have that kind of awareness, or or we can really want to be very aware of our mind. You know, and for some of us. It's really a key for our daily mindfulness just to track our minds, to track particularly, for me, very important, to track when I'm reactive, to track when I'm, you know, um, when they're suffering, just to really be alert for that so I can track that during the day. And I know that many of you do that because I've I've talked with many of you that you really, uh, there's this magical moment when in our practice we start being interested in our suffering. Curious about our suffering, rather than just taking it as something we want to get rid of. We become curious about our suffering, and we investigate our suffering. We, and we, we can sometimes say, oh, another moment of suffering. <laughs> what will I learn today? <laughs> and then there's, there's, you know, there's some humor about it, because it's usually not quite with that mood, right? It's usually more like, Another moment of suffering. I got to learn some more, something else, huh? <laughs> uh, but there's, but try it, you know, if you haven't. And how many people here take moments of suffering sometimes as a wake-up call to be mindful? So you know this, right? I'm, I'm, I'm touched really that because this is this is such a core practice, isn't it? And that's a kind of giving. That's really could be a mindfulness of the mind, the way our minds work. It could be a mindfulness partly of the heart. And that kind of, uh, that is also such a, um, a, a way to empower uh, daily life and daily life practice. And so I think if we bring all these together, you know, we bring these outward supports for mindfulness that we can do either ourselves or that we gradually learn to do together. You know, I was fantasizing about how you know, this class, maybe we, I have 45 of these, maybe we develop 100 and we publish a book from the Wednesday morning <laughs> class or something. I don't know. But I, is, there a, is there a book like that out there? A Hundred Ways to Be Mindful? Okay, well, don't <laughs> keep it in here. Don't, don't, don't sell it to someone else. <laughs> but um, so we do, we do those, we do those um, outer supports. You know, what we, we find ways to, that we can do it in individually. We find ways that we can do it collectively. And then we start doing the inner work. We start really focusing on intention. We focus on effort. And then we find ways to uh, have the, what I'm calling the threads of awareness in the body, heart, or mind get stronger. And I think that as we do that, 
it's, again, it's not just individual. There's something collective that happens that I think can be very beautiful, where we support each other and where we, I think it's a slow process. You know, cultures change slowly, but I can really imagine a, can you imagine a culture that's dedicated to mindfulness, at least a subculture, at least in certain areas of Northern California? Uh, can you imagine that 50 years from now, what that might look like as it goes into the educational system? And I, I just wanted to end with a story which I heard from Joanna Macy, which, is, uh, which I think to me taps some of the vision, the visionary energy of um, the sense of mindfulness being possible to be much stronger in our lives. And it was from, it's a story about Sri Lanka. And um, some of you know that, well, most of you probably know there was a civil war in Sri Lanka that went on for 20 years. There was a ceasefire that happened uh, in February of 2002. One of the powerful and beautiful Buddhist groups in Sri Lanka is called uh, Savrodhya, which is, uh, literally means waking up together. You could say it almost means mindfulness together. It's an organization which was founded in 1958 by Dr. Aryaratne. And it's, um, they have set up village development organizations based on principles of mindfulness, wisdom, and loving kindness in 15,000 villages in Sri Lanka. And they were a major force to help work through the, um, the Civil War. At the time of the ceasefire, they thought that it was very critical to bring more of the intention for peace into the culture, into the society. And so they called for a large group, uh, large meditation to happen in uh, March of 2002. They had experimented with some large group meditations and, and actually before the ceasefire, they had had meditations with up to 200,000 people at one time. And so they called for a large uh, meditation in March of 2002. It was, called, it was supposed to be called the Maha Shanti Samadhi Day. It means a day of great peace meditation. And it was held at a sacred site, uh, Anura Dapura, where there are a lot of, uh, a lot of Buddhas. 650,000 people showed up. And this is Joanna Macy's account that she gave. I arrived at Anura Dapura on the day of the meditation. The sacred site, probably half a mile in diameter, contains several great stupas and the world's most ancient Bodhi tree, grown from a cutting from the tree that sheltered the Buddha during his enlightenment, brought to Sri Lanka by King Ashoka's daughter, Sakyadita. Some of you know that's the name that was taken for the uh, International Organization of Buddhist Women. Um, when I got there, people were streaming from all directions. In the tradition of these events, everyone was dressed in white and moving in silence. 650,000 people in white moving in silence. They had arrived from all over the country on foot and on trains, bicycles, and according to one person's count, 4,000 buses. The meditation ceremony took place at 3 p.m. Members of the clergy and all of the religions of Sri Lanka were gathered on a platform and each said a few words. 
In front of them on a slightly lower stage, surrounded by flowers, was Dr. Ari Ratni, the, the founder of the organization. After the spoken prayers, he began to lead us all in anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing in and breathing out. The silence was the most exquisite sound I've ever heard. It was the sound of 650,000 people being quiet together. The biggest meditation ever held on planet Earth. I said to myself, this is the sound of bombs not exploding, of landmines not going off, of machine guns not firing. This is possible. So perhaps that can give some vision and energy, huh? And um, and some um, some power. Maybe it's in that context that we can think, uh, you know, we can find this um, inspiration to do the small stuff now. To kind of how do we hold both together? This really deep, powerful vision. And then we know we have to get there by doing the small stuff over and over again, right? Some of the things that I was mentioning and that, that you all know of. So I want to kind of try to hold both together and, and invite people just to, to, say, um, to say some of what really has worked for you or that that's helpful or, or something about that last story if that's, if that's still there for you. Really, just really so 
Thank you. Did everyone hear? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost to keep, uh, use the tool of impermanence and even the recollection of death. What was that? Carlos Castaneda? Death on one of the shoulders, I forget which one. Well, if it was the left shoulder. People know that story. Yeah. But it's but it's it's a it's a powerful practice not to be heavy-handed but to um, it's like to to know to kind of have the the big picture yeah. and that can really um, be a tremendous aid for mindfulness as well as just for um, compassion and, and wisdom. Yeah. Thank you. Do you mind if I put that on my list? I'm going to take some notes as you're talking. <laughs> if, if you want to, I mean, not to have on your list, let me know. Or on my list. Yeah. Yeah. And do you do that? Do you do that mindful leave taking even in small things, small ways as well? Yeah. 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 Yeah, so it's the new beginning. It's really uh, working with intention again, you know, especially in the morning. And then it's maybe the, um, some of that energy of approaching things and being attentive to the mystery, you know, to the mysterious aspect of things. And I mean, that's, I think we maybe don't talk about that quite enough in mindfulness, but there's something about mindfulness when it's alive it's like we get out of the what the the rutted roads of our routine. <laughs> Just came to me mysteriously. 
Um, but you, you know, that, that happens, right? That, that what's it like to live, uh, is it, isn't there something about the heart of mindfulness which is about living in mystery? Uh, even if we have a plan. And I think that's what, it, that's what I was hearing from that person, that there's something that it's a broad view. Uh, so we, uh, we, we can know that things happen unexpectedly, mysteriously, and that our ways of conceptualizing, although helpful sometimes, can be very uh, limited. Yeah, and, and, and there, there also are mysterious ways in which, which I probably is not understood scientifically, but I mean, a group of peeing, people being mindful set up a kind of a force field, you know, which I think we probably experience. I, I remember when I was um, um, I think at the end of the 70s, I was um, a graduate student and I was, I got, I arranged to live at uh, the Insight Meditation Society. I convinced the people to let me live in a little cottage across the street and work on my uh, dissertation like six hours a day and meditate ten hours a day. For, I did that for about eight months. And um, sometimes I would work on my, uh, on my writing and it was, um, sometimes it didn't feel like it was going too well or I'd be in a, you know, three hours staring at a blank piece of paper. This is, as some of you know, part of the experience of a writer. <laughs> and and I would, my mind would sometimes be a little agitated and I would walk across the street to where like a hundred people were meditating all day long for weeks or whatever. And I would feel this, I just, about halfway across the street, I, 
a loop. It was just my mind. My mind would be going, and then we go, <laughs> and it was it was powerful because it would just shut up, <laughs> shut down really quickly. And there was something. I mean, so I, I I don't know if you were going exactly there, but there was there's a way that you know, really the mindfulness does influence things, and you know. Um, I don't know. People maybe people come to your house and they say, "Oh, when I come here, my mind quiets down." How many people have friends sometimes say that? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Please. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's, it's something about the um, the freshness, huh? Or it's in in the Buddhist model of the seven factors of awakening. It's the quality of inquiry. It's sort of a fresh looking, with you know, like we might say, with the beginner's mind to use Suzuki Roshi's phrase, or the eyes of a child. And that's that's incredible for mindfulness. It's really that sense of wonder. It's wonder as giving energy for mindfulness. It's another powerful energy because you must have a sense of wonder every morning. Yeah, it's just, yeah. So it's the sort of a feedback loop because the, the the wonder feeds the energy and the energy kind of feeds the wonder and the mindfulness mm-hmm. feeds the wonder too. Can go back and forth. Huh. Yeah, a lot of feedback loops. <laughs> <laughs> um, please. Yeah. Maybe just I think if you could, if you um, both could be brief because we're at we're at time to close now and I'll try to be brief in my response. Um, I allow whatever comes around to yeah. to remind to be mindful. Yeah. And if my best thinking is why they're saying yeah. this or that or that, yeah. don't go by. Yeah. Um, anything that's moving, I'll, I'll lose quality yeah. and matter. Wow, fantastic. So allowing those things to be. That's great. Did everyone hear? Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> and last well, I, I'm responding to um, the thought that we create our day, and and then to hear that you know we wake up with the full open to the full possibilities, which says that we create our day, but we aren't attached to the outcome. Yeah. And that leading to an outcome. Yeah. yeah. That's a deep one. <laughs> uh, actually, one of the um, I've been work, uh, exploring that a lot. Maybe I could. I think I think I gave a talk something like that a, a few months ago because one of my chapters I'm working on is called "Committed Action, Non-Attachment to Outcome." <laughs> and it's that it's that paradox of just going right out there, but letting things. You know, we have. We have very um, ordinary English for that. It's like, do your best and let things, let the chips fall where they may. Right? That's kind of ordinary, mm-hmm. colloquial English. So I think we could go on for a while more to compare notes, but I want to honor the time and, and end, and just end with a, just a, a minute of just being quiet.
first let whatever was important from the, the morning from the talk and discussion, or perhaps from the meditation, not even necessarily related to the, to the theme. Whatever was important or touched you, let that be present. And also to invite um, any intentions which are present, perhaps just one or two intentions which might be related to strengthening your own intentions to be mindful, perhaps um, something you want to take from this morning that, w- that you'll implement. And very helpful with intentions to say, how will I manifest this intention in the next 24 hours. So it gets grounded uh, quickly. So we end this dedication of merit, knowing that we practice for ourselves, but we also practice for others. And may the fruits and benefits of the morning that's been of value, may it be shared widely with all beings for the healing and the benefit and the transformation of all beings, all beings at this time and at future times. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.